This is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. All right, everybody, welcome inside another edition, episode number 10 of the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. We have a great setup for you on today's program. Chris Plonsky, leadership executive in the athletic department at the University of Texas, will be joining us to talk about coronavirus, racial justice, her journey up through the ranks as a young journalism student at Kent State University here in Ohio, and then through the publicity office at Kent State, then to the Big East Conference during their heyday with Jim Beheim, Rick Pitino, John Thompson, Rolly Massimino. Incredible stories and the vision of Dave Gavitt that really came to fruition and set the table for the Big East to be, in my opinion, one of the most incredible stories in athletics at any level. I'm Zach Wells in Cincinnati alongside Matt Swinney in Austin. Matt, we have a World Series champion in this most bizarre year, and it's your favorite team. As you sit there in your blue fleece that no one can see, your favorite team, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And if you can see my face right now, it is dripping with sarcasm. Yeah, I'm not a Dodgers fan. <laughs> I don't like them at all. Uh, to be fair, yes, I mean, for everybody who listens, you know, I'm an Astros fan. So that's part of it. But also, like, as a kid, I grew up as a Braves fan. And of course, the Dodgers were good, and you know they 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 often were the ones who kept Dale Murphy from getting a ring. So I just I just the dumb Dodgers. I just don't like them. Sorry. I tell you what, I thought they showed incredible resolve in that series against the Atlanta Braves. They were down three to one in that series, and and I think you could have made a compelling case if you're a Dodgers fan. And I'm the first one to tell you, I really like Dave Roberts. He was a great player. He's forever etched in Red Sox lore with that big stolen base in the eighth inning against the Yankees in 2004, where they came back from three games to nothing down to, to go on and, and snap the curse of the Bambino against the Cardinals. But I, I tell you what, they were kind of the Susan Lucci's of Major League Baseball for the past few years. Loaded, talented, Hall of Famers in the starting rotation. You've got some up-and-coming potential Hall of Famers in the everyday nine. And they would get to October and fall apart. And had they collapsed against the Braves, which were you know, a far less talented group, I think you could have made the case as a backer of the LA Dodgers to ask yourself at least the question, and the people in the front office could have asked the question, is Dave Roberts the right guy to get us to the parade in October or early November? Yeah, and I think on top of that, I mean, to give them credit where credit is due, I actually thought in, in, you know, before the World Series started, I said that I thought the Dodgers would win this thing. But after the Brett Phillips walk-off, and man, we can talk about that all day long, how the World Series creates heroes out of guys all the time. But I thought after that, that there was a very good, I, I had a moment and I thought the Rays are going to win the series. Like, they just felt like they had the magic. They felt like they uh that that maybe some karma was there for some reason whatever the case may be and it's easy for a baseball team to fold after a loss like that and so give them a lot of credit that not only did they not fold but they just came back and just did what they do and spanked the rays of the next two games and it's and it's 
series over, right? So give them a lot of credit. And, and I, you know, and maybe that's a good place to give Dave Roberts a lot of credit of being able to whatever, I don't know what he said or what he did. We don't know that, but he clearly found a way to get those guys back together. Also, that's what happens when you have a lot of veteran leadership in a clubhouse, which they absolutely do have. And, you know, give them a lot of credit for coming back after that. That's not easy to do. And in fairness, their front office made a really nice move in the offseason trading uh, Alex Verdugo to Boston for Mookie Betts. So you'd have two MVPs in the same outfield in Betts and in Cody Bellinger. I'm going to go ahead and uh, speak to the Tampa Bay Rays fans or baseball fans in general that are bent, and I mean pissed, pissed that Kevin Cash went and got Blake Snell in game six. Blake Snell was dealing. There is no doubt about it. But you can't have it every way if you're a Tampa Bay Rays fan. They aren't good enough to be managed in the traditional sense. They are a small market club, one of, if not the lowest payroll in Major League Baseball. Their home stadium, it might be, you know, uh, it's a dump. You know, it might be, it's their dump, but it's a dump. And they have to be managed in a certain way to be able to have this kind of success. It's a credit to them. It's a credit to being an overachiever, to being a cast off, to being left for dead by another team. You're managed via analytics and numbers. So if you like playing in the World Series, being managed a certain way and through a certain process, you have to be okay with Kevin Cash going to get the ball from Blake Snell in that situation. I understand the frustration. It didn't work out, but it did work out in the championship series against the Yankees to be able to get on to play Tampa in the World Series. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, look, at the time when he, when there was a quick hook, no doubt. But at the same time, I just think that it's such a hindsight thing, right? Like if, if he makes that move and they get out of that inning, then it's obvious, right? Like, oh, he's brilliant. But you know, this is the problem with, with baseball in general, right? With, it, with any pitching change, frankly, like that's really what this comes down to. And it's easy to look in hindsight that maybe it was a bad decision, but I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't think it was a bad decision. I mean, obviously it was like in hindsight, but at the time, that's what got you there. It was those decisions that got you there. Also, he's got the best bullpen in baseball possibly. And those guys had been dealing for the entire postseason, the entire season, and they just got bit. And that's it. And, and by the way, and by the way, the Dodgers are, are the better team. Like, just so we're clear, the Dodgers are the better team. By a mile. Right. And right. it's to this credit that they made it a really competitive series. Right, right. And, and a fun team to watch. And, you know, this isn't the end of Randy Rosarena. You know, that guy is going to be a lot of fun to watch for a really long time. And, you know, the Rays will go do what the Rays do, right? They're going to they're gonna pick up, you know, lost parts and, you know, little doll heads and everything else. And they're going to turn them into... Find anybody to trade Right, exactly, because they fleece everyone on every single trade. <laughs> I mean, I think if uh, I think if Ray's management calls you and says, "Hey, we want to, uh, how about this guy for this guy?" You should just run the other direction. Right, or if you just got to get a feel for who they want and then extend them. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, I my organization and then call his agent and lock him up long term. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So congratulations to the Dodgers. I know they're not my favorite team for sure, but I, you know. I, I have a lot of respect for Clayton Kershaw in particular. Um, I think I said last week on the episode that the world is not right if Clayton Kershaw retires without a ring. 
And so the world, the world is right. And, you know, seeing the absolute joy on his face as he, as he gets to take one home, I think, you know, good, good for him. You know, I love Mookie. I really do. I loved him more as a, in Boston than I do in LA. You know, I actually really enjoy Cody Bellinger, even though he said terrible things about my Astros. Um, the one guy I do not like on that team really is the leprechaun. I'm not a fan of Justin Turner. So can we just talk about his super selfish uh, choices or, or how do you feel about this? Like, I get it. Look, I, and he, and he deserves the right to celebrate with his teammates. I get it. But at the same time, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, it's never an easy situation. You can make the case, you know, Justin Turner has been playing baseball since he was five years old and, you know, had dreamed about this situation since he was hitting tees into a net into his backyard and his, you know, parents were taking him to practice when he was a little kid. He was actually a Reds draft pick back in 2006 and was since traded away. You know, when you're in that kind of protocol, the reason Major League Baseball was able to have a season is because there were very strict guidelines and protocols that were followed. And I, and I believe Justin Turner was the first positive case. In, in like a month. Yeah. So you know, I, I feel for him to be able to, you know, have, have that situation. But I, I believe, you know, it's almost like the toughest thing to do is, is the right thing to do. And that's to, to, to hold off and stay in the background and not make the story that story, which is, you know, defying the protocol. Yeah, and that—that's I think what I'm frustrated I, by. Terrible. Yeah, but but I, but I think that's what frustrates me about it is that you know instead of celebrating 32 years of Dodger futility into a into a finally a championship, we're that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the guy who you know chose to break pro and not just break protocol, but like really make some kind of in my opinion some bonehead choices once he got out on the field. You know, I mean. I get it. I understand. I know that it's a tough thing to ask him to do to stay in the clubhouse, but you know, maybe there was some middle ground in between that he could have made some better choices, but that's just me. Um, can we also talk real quick? So Matt, I grew up, I grew up watching. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, can we, can we just, can we switch gears a little bit and talk about Tony La Russa as the new manager of the White Sox? And how do you feel about that? Cause I think it's just absolutely stupid so Steve Steve Stone who I grew up with and you did watching on Cubs telecasts with Harry Carey I don't think they could have made baseball any more fun than than you know Harry and Steve did he, he tweeted it out because he's now a White Sox color analyst on the on the TV broadcast with Jason Benetti that he's not going to be the oldest guy on the plane anymore so what a great day it is <laughs> I think that's pretty funny the easy thing to do is to look at the hire and say it makes no sense. You know, the guy's a dinosaur. He's been out of the game for nine years. He's a Hall of Famer, and he won World Series in two different organizations. I'm going to ask to kind of look at it a little bit differently. What separates really good managers from Hall of Fame managers, and Tony's going to be in Cooperstown one day, is how they manage a pitching staff. That was an Achilles heel last year for the White Sox. For the White Sox, it's not a talent issue. It's also a discipline issue, okay? And that's not going to be a problem with Tony La Russa as manager. A couple stories that we would hear about Tony from old people in the game that would come by the TV station back in the day. I think they were at Coors Field playing a series one year. The Cardinals were playing the Rockies. Played terribly. Came in. Tony La Russa 
and just, you know, to kind of state the obvious, being a major league baseball player is not a grim existence. Okay, after you're done playing and collecting a, a very nice check for your efforts, you come in and there's a huge spread of food that you can you know, sit down and have a meal in, in the player's dining room. He just took the table and flipped it over. Stuff was everywhere. Okay. We're not going to, we're going to loaf during the game. We're not eating afterwards. Okay. One of their star players, I don't know if it was Jim Edmonds or whatever, uh, got a day off on a Sunday. He's sitting there in his tennis shoes in the dugout. That did not go over well. I, I believe the comment was where are your effing spikes? The guys are going to be ready. The guys are going to know who's in charge. And I don't think discipline and the management of the pitching staff are going to be a problem anymore. And those guys are only going to get more talented and be able to use the experience to bring that talent to the forefront to be able to get to where they want to go in October. Yeah, and I hear you there. Do you think, but, but baseball in the last nine years, even since Tony's been on the sidelines, has, has changed pretty dramatically from, from a young player's perspective, right? Let the kids play, right? The, the MLB moniker which sometimes they live up to and sometimes they don't, you know, to me, that's one of the most exciting, fun, young teams in baseball. And do you think Tony will find whatever that little magic sauce is that somewhere between highly disciplined and Yohan Mankata bat flips, because I'm here for the bat flips. I want to see it. And I think the fan base wants to see it and they want those guys to have fun and be loose and I fear with Tony that he's not going to find that middle ground and it's just going to be all discipline and this blows up in their face, but I don't know. I tell you, there's one thing about Tony and that's that he's not stupid, you know, and he knows his teams and as much as we like the bat flips and we like everybody having fun, I think the White Sox would have a lot more fun at a parade too. Sure. Maybe the players and Tony can find some compromise there and maybe not bat flip every other home run and maybe find a more disciplined approach. I'm not saying regimented, militaristic, no fun, but if they can meet kind of midway, I think having a parade at Grant Park would be a lot of fun for everybody because the yeah. White Sox since 2005. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and to be fair, I mean, I think that, um, you know, someone like a, you know, not that Dave Roberts is a disciplinarian at all, but I think, but I think you know, the Dodgers do have some leaders on that team um, who probably are a bit more disciplinary and, and they can also bat flip with the best of them. And so I, th- I think the, I think the best modern managers are the ones who somehow find that balance of fun and discipline, which is really tough. Right. I mean, hell, that's what it's like being a dad. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's similar, right. You gotta, you gotta lay down the hammer when you need to, but you also gotta let them be kids when you need to. And that's a very, very difficult line to draw. And you know, I, I'll just be curious. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't love the hire, obviously. I would have loved to see them go with a, you know, younger, more energetic, you know, sort of, um, you know, maybe a little wet behind the ears manager who's, a, you know, more analytics driven and everything else. But at the same time, you know, we I said that same thing about the Astros when they hired Dusty Baker. And I think Dusty did a great job with that team this year. So so, you know, what do I know? Right. I mean, maybe 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 Tony is the right guy. And before we leave baseball and head into Chris, um, it looks like A.J. Hinch is going to get the job in Detroit. Uh, I have told you before that I am convinced that Alex Cora is going back to Boston. Um, I'm not sure you believe that. I think you think that maybe Heim Bloom wants, wants his own guy in there. Um, how do you feel about that, the, the kind of scandal guys coming back into the game? Well, I have a lot more respect for A.J. Hinch and, and Alex Cora and Jeffrey Lunau. 
uh, the former general manager of the Astros because they actually paid a price, right? They gave up salary. They gave up really high profile positions in successful organizations. You know, AJ Hinch had to uh, relinquish his, his job in the Astros dugout. So did Alex Cora in Boston and they paid a penalty. And I think the Astros players would be in a lot better stead. They would be held in higher regard if they had had to pay a penalty as well, just as some of the steroid users have in years past, but that's my beef with Rob Manfred. I think that, that there was some, you know, trying to, 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 you know, massage the players' egos and not hurt feelings and not, you know, and let's get to the truth and then you can go back to the playground. I, I'm all for AJ Hinch coming back to the dugout. The, the penalty was paid. He sat out for a full year. He's got a heck of a rebuilding job on his hands in Detroit. Uh, I certainly wish him the best doing it. And it's going to be interesting to see if Alex Cora goes back to Boston and if uh, Jeffrey Lunau with his very analytics-driven approach uh, is able to go back to a front office that will have him in to try to, you know, create a, a winning blueprint in baseball. Yeah, I will argue with you on the Jeff Lunau piece just because I think that he has been just so um, – I mean, he hasn't fessed up to anything, right, at the end of the day. And I, I'm pretty sure – say what? No, I, I think, Matt, to your point, we're assuming he's lying. Okay. I, I didn't okay. do anything. Maybe he did. But what I'm saying is I don't know. Well, And what he, I'm saying – Here's the thing. If, if he's not lying, that's fine. If he didn't know anything about it, maybe that's true. But then you're a really crappy GM. Like, how do you not know – I mean, to me, like, leadership no, – no. It's not a good idea. It's not a good look. Right. And, and to me, like, th there is a different way. If he didn't know, then he should say, look, I didn't know about this. And that's still on me because I was the leader of that organization and I should have known that that was going on. And yes, I will serve my suspension fine. And, and I would have a lot more respect if he said that rather than just kind of saying, look, I'm getting scapegoated here. By the way, I think the same thing about Jim Crane you know, as the owner of the Astros, like same thing, like he should have come out and said, while I didn't know this was going on, the buck stops with me. And therefore, you know, I, I will take responsibility for that, blah, 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 right? At the end of the day, when you're talking about hierarchy, you know, it's Crane, then Lunau, then Hinch, then, then Cora, kind of in this case, and Beltron, maybe in some ways, and then players, which Beltron was a player at the time. And so to me, like, you know, I get it that, that the players are, um, have, have, have kind of gotten off scot-free, but at the same time, they were the lowest ones on the totem pole. And, and I know we don't like to think of it like that, but from a business organizational perspective, they are. That said, I wish AJ Hinch the best of luck. I, 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 I think he's good for baseball. I think he should be back in baseball. I don't actually think he's a fantastic manager. You and I have talked about this before. Um, I think Alex Cora should be back in baseball. I think they've paid the price and, you know, we're, we're a country of second chances. So let's let them have their second chances and, you know, they'll, they'll prove it on the field, right? Because they're not going to do anything like that again. Let's be realistic. I was intrigued by Lunau's you know, media appearance. I believe it was a tele, on a television station in Houston where he said, look, I, I put together a notebook to try and defend myself. I think that's something that in America we lose sight of. If you're accused of something, you do have a due process right to go and defend yourself if you didn't do it, even if you did do it. Sure. And he said, I, I went to the commissioner with a notebook of 22,000 text messages that, that show I knew nothing about this. I'm not in there anywhere. Now, how were these messages culled? How are they, they grouped? How were they gathered? Okay, I got that. Those are questions that I don't have the answers to. 
But I think we've just become so cynical to thinking that if someone says I didn't do it, they're automatically lying. But I agree with you, whether it's you knew or you didn't know, it's, it's not a good look and you're running the organization. I, I just feel that this whole thing to me, the Astros cheating scandal that we keep talking about, just, just smells a lot to me without any proof that there was so, some workmanship between Rob Manford, the commissioner, and Jim Crane, the owner, because Crane thought that Manford was going to come in and make him sell the team. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think you're potentially. I don't think you're wrong about that. I, 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 I look. A deal was clearly made between Manford and Crane. I mean, I, I think that's the writing is on that wall. The, the only thing, just to close out the Lunau thing again. I absolutely think he should. He has the right to defend himself. I also think he has the right to go get another job in baseball. By the way, like I, 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 I don't wish the guy harm at all. He did what he did, or didn't do. But again, to me, it's more about just taking ownership of the fact of, and it's okay to say I have twenty-two thousand text messages that prove that I didn't know about it. And so I'm going to defend myself from a, I didn't know about it perspective. However, I should have known about it. It was my organization. And I'm going to take ownership of that. That's fair. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's the only thing to me. That... So Matt, before we get to Chris Ponsky, who's a fascinating woman, a lifetime executive within the, the hallways of, of athletics at the University of Texas, the Big East Conference, Iowa State University, and, and others. Can you lay out for us, for our listeners, because we're going to get to it with Chris toward the end of our conversation, the eyes of Texas, that tradition at the University of Texas after the football games, and what the controversy and the concerns are as they relate to racial justice? So, um, full disclosure, we are season ticket holders for UT football. Uh, We like to take our kids to UT sporting events. I bleed, burn orange. I hold my horns high. Um, I think it is the equivalent of flipping the bird at somebody when you point your horns down. I'm looking at you, OU fans. Um, So to set the scene a little bit with all of the kind of racial justice issues, Zach literally just on my screen did that and I am now doing this. So so to set the scene a little bit. Yeah. So post George Floyd, um, racial injustice became a hot topic of conversation around the country, around the world, as it should be. Um, at the University of Texas, some conversations were had. It's a, it is a school in the South, in Texas. I know we like to think of Austin as this kind of liberal bastion, but the reality is it's still a city in Texas, and the University of Texas has been around for a very long time and has seen a lot of history. Um, statues have been removed on campus of Confederate soldiers. Um, buildings have been renamed. There was a big push from several student athletes led primarily by football players. And there was essentially a letter drafted to the president of the university and Chris Del Conte, the athletic director at UT, that basically said, these are some, I, I don't want to say demands, but these are things that we want the university to address, right? And as it relates to kind of racial injustice at the University of Texas over the years. And um, two of those things, um, actually really just one of those things was about the eyes of Texas. Um, So this is a song um, set to I've Been Working on the Railroad, which has a whole different connotation potentially. But um, the eyes of Texas is a song that we all sing at the beginning of every game. We hold our horns up high. 
100,000 people in a football stadium singing it together is a really special thing. It's powerful if you are involved in the University of Texas. At the end of games, uh, players typically, um, I think in all, I think in virtually every sport, the players all come together. They turn around and look at the fans. They hold their horns up high and they sing the eyes of Texas back to the fans. Um, the eyes of Texas, as maybe a lot of people knew before, I did not know, was sung at minstrel shows um, in the early 1900s. Um, so it clearly has a history. The song itself, I don't believe, has been deemed racist in any way. Uh, I don't think any of the lyrics are particularly problematic. Um, I think really the issue comes back to that it was sung at these minstrel shows. Fast forward um, 110 years uh, to 2020. It is several students um, and student athletes, Longhorn Band members um, have said that they don't wanna play the song anymore because of its racist history. So there is a conversation being hap happening um, within the university about whether or not the Eyes of Texas you know, should continue to be sung and should continue to be the school song. Um, I will give my opinion and it is my opinion only. And to preface that, I am a 45 year old white man. So it is not my job to have an opinion on this. I will just tell you from a fan's perspective. Um, the song is special to me. It's special to my family. Um, I remember 2005, I guess technically six, when Vince Young ran in that touchdown in that epic Rose Bowl game for Texas to win its first national, cha national championship since the early 70s. Um, my wife and I were sitting in her parents' living room uh, watching that game, just the four of us, before we had kids. And when Vince ran that in, I think I leaped over the coffee table. And, you know, it was one of those moments that we shared as a family, as we have shared many together. And at the end of that game, you know, we stood in our living room, in their living room, you know, with our horns up, singing the eyes of Texas as if we were there. It is that special. And so to me, the idea of losing that song, um, it hurts. But at the same time, um, I am also okay with new traditions if, that, if that's what needs to happen. So I appreciate that the University of Texas is having these conversations. I, you will hear from Chris, I think it's very poignant how the University of Texas is going about this. Um, and I think it's important to talk about. And I think it's become this big national story um, that you know, I think UT is one of many schools, but for whatever reason, it has become at the forefront. There was this picture uh, two weeks ago um, of Sam Ellinger after the game at home. Um, it was a loss um, to TCU, and he is uh, over by where the Longhorn Band normally is and where they normally go after the games are over, and he's got his horns up, and he's singing the eyes of Texas, and he's by himself and his teammates are not with him. Really, that's no matter where you stand. Uh, and this is not me making an opinion because I don't follow Texas nearly as closely as you or the people down there, or the members of the fan base. That's a tough look. So, so just to talk about that for a second before we get into Chris. So that's what made this a national story was that photo. Um, and look, it's a bad look, understood. But at the same time, you know, my understanding is, is that the team got together, they talked about it, and they have decided as a team that they're going to go over and they're going to stand together. Now, 
you are not required to sing the song. You are not even required to put your horns up if you don't want to. But, and, and last week um, in the win against Baylor, they all did it. And so look, I, I, I think these are, at the end of the day, the part that I don't want to get lost in this is these are young kids making decisions as they go and they are allowed to have feelings. This is not solely about wins and losses. This is about people's lives and this is about them being, a look, <laughs> I, I always think it's funny when we hear in this politically charged climate that we're in, just shut up and play ball. Like, why are you talking about politics or in Hollywood? Just shut up and act like no one wants to hear what you have to say. These people are humans first. And yes, I do want to hear what they have to say, even if I disagree with it, which in this case, I'm not sure I do. So I just think that, you know, it's okay for us to, in fact, it's good for us to continue to have this conversation. I don't know where this is going to shake out. Chris Plonsky, when she's on, she doesn't know where this is going to shake out either. But for right now, that is the school song. And, you know, to create unity through that song, I think is incredibly important right now. And to me, that's the one thing I will say is that when you are standing there with 100,000 people at a football game and everyone is singing it together, it feels unifying to me, not divisive. And so I think it's our job as people who are maybe older than you know the millennials that are currently playing the game and in school right now, I think it's our job to um, listen, to open our ears, to close our mouths and to guide and to understand and do our best to understand positions, but it doesn't help anybody for alums, boosters, or anybody else to say, just shut up and let the adults handle this. That's not good for anybody. And when, and I have seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of those kinds of comments. And when you go down that road, you're just going to get them to dig in even deeper. And so to me, having a real conversation about this is a great thing. And, you know, we'll see where it shakes out. So I, I appreciate that Chris uh, was willing to talk about it. It's, uh, it's not an easy one. Um, and, and, you know, it's a, it, I don't know, I was inspired after hearing her talk about it, about where the university is taking it. So I hope everybody enjoys. And in fairness to Chris, and as a credit to her, there was no question off the table. She said, I'm an open book. I'll answer whatever you want. So that's right. That's, that's right. Chris Plonsky, ladies and gentlemen, on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. It is our pleasure on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast to welcome in a veteran administrator, a leader at the University of Texas in the athletic department, as well as a just a, a mainstay around the country on various boards and committees, various uh, athletic-related endeavors. It is our pleasure, and, and we're very, very grateful to welcome in Chris Plonsky to the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Chris, it is great to have you. It's also great to have someone in Matt's backyard of Austin, Texas, joining us today. How are you? We're great. Uh, it's an honor to meet you guys and to uh, have, have this uh, session on this wonderful, bright day in Austin. Well, I'm jealous because I'm freezing. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're trying to dust off the raindrops after the, the you know, tail end of Hurricane Zeta that came through. But I want to ask, Chris, have you ever, you know, when you're busy and you've got a jam-packed schedule, sometimes you don't have time to, to step back and, and evaluate the big picture. But when you look at your career, uh, what, are, what are your takeaways? And, and, and it's a story that's still being written, but what do, you, what do you glean from your service so far to higher education? You know, it's, um, I, I, 
credit, and I tell people this, I, I've been blessed because um, this started a long time ago. Um, and like most people um, who grew up in households where education was talked about um, and prominent, I mean, I, I owe a lot of this to my parents. Um, I'm, one of, I'm the eldest of five girls, um, grew up in Western Pennsylvania, and then my dad moved us to Northeast Ohio in the mid 60s. So I'm not too far uh, from where my mother is in Cuyahoga Falls, which is in you know the Akron area. But uh, my mom and dad were, were uh, high school sweethearts. Um, they were four years apart. Uh, my dad was one of 10. Um, he was the only one of his siblings to go to college. Um, he got a college football scholarship. He was a, he was a heck of a little athlete. And uh, he went and played football for what is now Louisiana Monroe. So picture a guy growing up literally in poverty. I mean, when I used to visit my grandparents as a youngster, um, their restroom was literally an outhouse behind a tiny house in Bavard, Pennsylvania. Um, and my grandfather was a coal miner, barely spoke English. He had come over from Poland at 16 years old. But my dad um, taught me a lot about what education could do because for him, he, uh, he, got, he went to school for free. He and three other high school teammates from Greensburg, Pennsylvania, got, got football scholarships at Louisiana Monroe. Then it was Northeast Louisiana. He got a business degree. He was in ROTC, so he served in the Army after graduation, came back, and he worked for General Tire and Rubber Company and was a systems analyst long before I knew what a computer was. I mean, it was just a fascinating, um, again, opportunity um, due to his talent and his drive uh, he married my mother, uh, and uh, they were married 62 years before he passed last Thanksgiving, and uh, he, he lived a good long life. But my mother, again, she also went to college. She was a nurse um, uh, taught by nuns in Pittsburgh Hospital, which doesn't exist anymore, but she was an RN before she started having all of us. And, uh, but from the time I, I was four, um, I, I, you know, I was being taught to read, taught to write, um, actually went to first grade when I was five because Catholic schools in Greensburg let you in then. And so it was pretty regimented. And um, I've always appreciated education. Uh, all four of my sisters and I went to college at either Akron or Kent. Um, and, uh, you know, in the days of when you paid for your own school too, because that's why we had summer jobs in order to do that. But um, I was lucky enough to start working in athletics as a publicist in the you know sports information office at Kent thanks to my coach who was again I went there to get a journalism degree I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated that was my dream and I had no idea there was a publicity office for college athletics on campus I didn't even know it existed um, and my coach who was also the women's athletics director um, taught probably seven PE classes coach field hockey um, pointed to a building and said, I want you to go see that guy now that you've gotten the J school at Kent State. Um, I want somebody to start tracking women's athletics stats, data, records. And thus was born a career, if you will. As an undergrad, I got to work in higher ed in college athletics and um, had no idea that I could make a career of it, but that's what happened. Um, so again, uh, being pointed in the direction where education was important uh, learning about communication early, um, and then being lucky enough to have an era post just post Title IX passage, where a 
a strong woman executive like Judy Devine was at Kent State um, looked out for me and said, this, this is, this is going to open a door for you. Um, just lucky. And it's, you know, the path has continued at really great places, great universities. I, I have spent half my life in Austin, Texas. Um, 30, this is my 32nd year. It's an incredible place. And I love Austin because of what Austin is. Love the hot weather, but mostly what I really like is being at a institution where the academic reputation is as important to its 500,000 living alums as the asset that college athletics should be if we're successful and do it the right way. And what what got you to Texas, Chris? How'd you get here? I was um, right after I graduated from Kent. Um, you know, I had to go to work and I was trying to find a job and a guy in the office, Dick Sapera, who was one of my best friends for a while. He was a ticketing guy at the Cleveland Indians and the University of Miami in Florida. But Dick, Dick said, uh, hey, Chris, I've got two letters here. One's from Iowa State and one's from Washington State. And they're both wanting to hire specifically a female for sports information. So I sat down at the old Selectric typewriter, fired off two letters. Iowa State called and I got hired to be the women's sports info director um, in 1979. Two years later on that old quip, seven minutes a page to send something fax machine, I got this notice that said, women's sports info job, University of Texas, it pays $20,000. I was making 14 at the time. I went, man, if I could get that job, I'd be rich. Applied for the job, um, interviewed, didn't get it and didn't get it. Um, it crushed me. Um, I was only 23 and, and the boss down here at the time, Donna Lopiano thought I was a, a little too wet behind the ears. The woman they offered the job to though, who was a, a compadre of mine at Missouri, turned the job down, didn't want to move in the middle of the year because it was a October hiring timeframe. And uh, then they called me and said, are you still interested in being a Longhorn? And I called this friend of mine and said, what are you doing? Are you mad? I would crawl on glass to work in Austin at that university. And she said, Chris, you know, I'm, I'm a little more uh, set in my ways than you are right now. And I, I'm not going to move in the middle of the year and they need someone right now. And I said, I'm out, I'm going. And uh, that's how I got to Texas. Again, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well what what was what was your friend's uh loss was your gain i guess and so that was remind me of the year what year would that have been chris that would have been in the fall of 81 and so okay. i came technically i started here in january of 82 yeah okay so you have um seen and you and you and you started your career in the women's athletics department and now you're you're really over you know under under crystal conte you know the or you know the the, the larger athletics department. So you were there in the 86 Jody Conrad, the women's basketball team, you know, and really uh, that time when uh, women's athletics really started to explode in general, but especially at the University of Texas, I'd love to hear, you know, maybe yeah. some of those stories around uh, and, and probably a lot of it due to Jody, right? I mean, and, and, and that, that trickled down to, to all the women's athletics. You know, when uh, when I was interviewing for the job, again, it was a sports information director job, you know, and I was at Iowa State, which was a great big eight school. I mean, Donnie Duncan was our football coach. Believe it or not, Mac Brown was the offensive coordinator of our football team while I was there for those two and a half years. Yeah. It's amazing how the world, you know, gets smaller as you go through it. But 
I'm a basketball junkie. Um, I love the sport. And when I found out that they um, averaged already in 1981, um, 2,500 fans a game have had that beautiful spanking new, relatively four-year-old Frank Irwin Center, 16,000 seats. I had never seen that many orange seats in my life. Um, they already had a full-time fundraiser, uh, full-time academician, full-time marketing person, events person. I was like, oh my God, like Donna, Donna was serious. And we only had eight sports and about 88 female athletes. And remember in 1981, the AIAW was a governing body for women's sports, but the NCAA also started having women's championships in the 81-82 school year. Donna happened to be president of the AIW that year, so she kept our sports back. Jody, who had a great basketball team that year, was furious. She wanted to go to the NCAA the way UCLA and Louisiana Tech and the others were. Donna just said, hold your horses there, young pup. Um, and all of you, just be patient. I've got to go get you more money from the administration because the rules are different. Right now, you recruit. Kids have to come to you and like your school and like it. You can't pay for them to come in. The NCAA recruiting rules is you can fly them here, pay for a 48-hour visit, yada, yada. So Donna was wise. Uh, you, you really have to credit Lopiano, who, like Judy Holland at UCLA, Barbara Hedges at USC, Christine Grant at Iowa. These were formidable administrative women who had a vision for what women's athletics should be on college campuses. But Donna was a dynamo for uh, being, as Jody used to call her, the pushiest Yankee on the planet because she was from Stanford, Connecticut. Donna came down here, had a PhD, and she was an academic first. She validated doing what she did for women's athletics by telling our president, our regents, and our faculty, not only are these women going to be talented and good and win, but we're going to graduate them. And we're also going to diversify this campus because we're going to recruit women of color and women who would not have even have been thinking about coming to this university, but they have an athletic gift. And we're going to make sure they've got the support and the resources because some of them may be less prepared than their peers but we're gonna make sure that they're successful. So that whole model, which again, in 2020 is what people expect of us, our donors, our fans, the public. Donna was talking about that stuff back then. And you're right about the basketball piece. She was smart. Um, she, Donna hired Jody. Um, believe it or not, UT Arlington was where Jody was in 1975 when Donna got hired. Arlington actually was further along in their sports than UT was. And um, Jody was the women's AD at Arlington. And Donna called her brash Yankee and said, hey, I'm going to hire a women's basketball coach. What do you think about these people? And she clicked off about four names of really vaunted coaches on the East Coast, Queens College, you know, Immaculato, where the powers were. And Jody just kind of said, did you ever think about somebody who might uh, know this state? This state has more great student athletes, men and women in the UIL high school system than any place in the nation, other than California and Florida, maybe. Uh, you might think about if somebody could just recruit the best from home, they'd be successful. And again, Donna drove up to Arlington and cooked, cooked Jody this big spaghetti dinner, allegedly, and um, hired her on the spot to coach volleyball and basketball. Believe it or not, she did two sports here. 
So by the time I got here, she was only coaching basketball. And I had never seen a team, a women's team, run, jump, and play the way they did. They pressed 94-50 the whole game. Fans loved it. They fast-braked on offense. I don't think we were ever in a half-court set. It was just move, make it entertaining. Um, my four and a half years here in those years, basketball, I think, had 124-9 and nine record. I saw nine losses over a four-and-a-half-year period. Um, we were averaging 8,000 by the time I left to go to the Big East in the summer of 86. It was unbelievable. Um, yeah, again, I, basketball was a bell cow. Yeah, I remember going to those games. So my sister, my older sister, was a volleyball and basketball player. And we, I mean, I remember going to those games in 86, Clarissa Davis and Fran Harris and Cami Etheridge and all of those just amazing women basketball players. And I think what 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 maybe I mean this is I'm I'm aging myself here too, but I think what people maybe need to understand is at the time, Texas basketball uh, was really only about the women's program. To be honest, there I, I'm pretty sure it was drawing more fans than the men's basketball program was. And that the Irwin Center was loud and rocking. And it is not known as a loud stadium at all now. Um, but at the time, it really was like, and, and Jody was the, was the queen. I mean, honestly, like probably the most well-known coach on campus, even probably in many ways more recognizable than, I guess, I think Fred Akers was probably the football coach at the time. And it, it really was the jewel of the kind of UT athletics program, men and women at the time, maybe, yeah. maybe along with baseball, funny enough. And, and what made it so special? Because remember, when I got here, they were averaging about 2,500. But what they used to do, again, it was, it was old grassroots-style PR. Um, and I had to be part of it at that point as a media specialist. But it was really marketing, ticketing, event management, event presentation, all rolled into one and it was the whole department participated not only in Jody sport, but in every one of them, volleyball, track, you know, we were swimming, we were good and everything. But Jody and Donna were, were really savvy. Austin was a small city then. It was only about 325,000 people. Um, so when you were successful, just like, you know, great football teams were back in that era, people follow and are attracted by success and entertainment. But what Jody and Donna did was personalize it. They started what they called a fast break club, which after games, if you paid $50 a year to the department, because Donna believed in pulling your own weight, she wanted to sell tickets and fundraise, the boosters could literally meet and talk to the student athletes after every game. So there was a stage in the room, a microphone, and the audience could ask questions Hey, you know, Andrea Lloyd, uh, tell us how you guarded so-and-so from Texas Tech tonight. And, but behind all that was presentation, learning to communicate, being on camera, if you will, learning how to thank the people who supported you, because that's what would happen. They would say, thank you for being here. Bring friends the next time. Um, if they, uh, you know, Donna sometimes would paper a house early in the season and say, I'll give you a free ticket to bring a friend this time. After that, they pay their own way. But it was really, really grassroots. I mean, they never missed a Kiwanis meeting or a church social or, you know, you name it, they went and pitched their product. And, and they did it personally, not just, you know, staffers like me, but Donna, Jody, her assistants, they went and marketed. 
So um, I think what really happened is we hosted the final four in 85 here. We weren't in it. That's the year we got beat by Western Kentucky, but we had a party. I mean, the coaches convention and everything that rolls around the final four coaches like Gino and others came and went back to their schools and said, look at what they're doing down there. And it really helped explode at the big public schools, uh, sort of the muscle of what, if you really backed your women's program and gave them support, marketing, you know, personnel to do it, you could, you too could build champions. And for a big public school, a football school by reputation, to be able to have a women's athletics program be successful that way. And um, it, it was pretty amazing. So Jody and Donna together, they were Mutt and Jeff in terms of personality. Donna, again, this brash, an idea a minute uh, person. And Jody was sort of the quintessential Texas lady, always wore a, you know, a dress to coach in. Um, it, they were amazing. And just to watch that machine work was pretty incredible. When you, Chris, went to the Big East Conference, uh, you and I are, are really similar. We have uh, journalism backgrounds. We're basketball junkies. I am the, the grandchild of immigrants as well, and I you know, stand on their shoulders, and I'm in awe of everything they risked uh, to come to this country and provide for our family. When you went to the Big East Conference, you went at a time where it was just kind of in the early going, right? We had outlier schools in the Northeast, Villanova, Syracuse, Georgetown, all coming together under the vision of Dave Gavitt and the incredible team that was put together there. Can you put into perspective what it was like to work there where you had guys starting Hall of Fame careers right around the time you got there? Jim Beheim at Syracuse was there for about 10 years. Providence had a guy named Rick Patino on the sidelines. They went to the Final Four in 87. Uh, Connecticut went to Northeastern and hired a guy named Jim Calhoun, who is now in the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. And, and we can't get him off the sidelines. He's coaching in Division Three. What was that experience like for you? That job, again, you want to talk about lucky. Um, I got a call. I was in the office on a, on a summer day at 1030 at night, and my phone rang. And it was Dick Weiss, who was, we call him Hoops. He was a famous sports writer from uh, the Philadelphia Daily News. And uh, he said, here's why I'm calling you. You know, what the hell are you doing in your office at 1030 at night? It's summer. And I said, Hoops. You know, our track team just won an NCAA title. Our swimming team just won an NCAA title. Jody won a title. You know, she could run for governor right now and win. I said, I, I just, you know, I can't keep up. And he said, well, I want you to think about this PR job at the Big East that's open. And I knew, I, I said, I, I know what the Big East is. I'm, I watch their games on ESPN. I don't care if it's Providence Pitt, you know, a replay at 10 o'clock at night. I'll go home and watch it. But he said, um, well, the guy, they're going to start their own network here. And the guy that was the PR guy in the office, Tom McElroy, is going to go run the network. And uh, th this PR job is open. And I want you to apply for it. And I remembered Providence because as a kid, I loved that 73 PC team with Marvin Barnes and Ernie DiGregorio. And I was a sophomore in high school that year. And when I saw Ernie throw that three-quarter court behind the back pass on the run, I think it was against Maryland, Kevin Stakem caught it and made a, you know, like a seamless layup. 
I went down to my basement and practiced that pass until my mother, you know, screamed at me to say, if you are denting my walls down there, you are grounded for, you know, the rest of your life. But sure enough, I get this interview and I walk in and, and I met Gavitt and I, this is summer of 86. Okay. Shake his hand. I said, coach Gavitt, it is just an honor to meet you. And he goes, coach Gavitt. He said, you belie your age. And I said, well, and I described that Ernie D, Marvin, you know, watching that team's experience, you know, if Marvin hadn't hurt his knee, um, you know, they, they'd, have, they'd have won that final four instead of UCLA, but they lost to Memphis after Marvin's knee went out. So I go in his office and we talked basketball for half an hour. He, he, he had watched Jody's teams. He knew how they ran and pressed. We talked about how the Big East physical style of play was a contrast to the ACC. Remember, the league was only seven years old when, when he hired me. Um, they had just had that three out of the four in the final four in 85 and, and Rupp when Roley's team had the perfect game and beat John Thompson's, you know, formidable Hoyas who had won the year before. I don't think um, they got. Un, yeah, unbelievable. So um, I'm here, here I am. It's a, it's a PR junkie. It was a basketball junkie's dream and basketball shortly said was our football there. Um, Cause remember we only had nine schools at that point. Pitt had just come in two years before. BC, Pitt, Syracuse had football, but they were all independents, same as Penn State and the rest of them. So um, the tournament in Madison Square Garden, you know, our own network doing third tier games. We had big contracts with CBS and ESPN for the Monday night game of the week, the Wednesday night game of the week, and CBS have us on the weekends. It was, I mean, that's where I got my other free lesson on television and marketing. I mean, we had to sell advertising for our network. So we had a Chrysler player of the week, a Dodge freshman of the week. I mean, they were two big sponsors. So, you know, that's when college athletics was ooching into the commercialization era. You know, it was mid eighties, women's athletics was starting to really perk up. Schools were getting, you know, equitable in their offerings. And, you know, money just doesn't grow on trees to fund programming. So, uh, eventually college athletics everywhere was going to commercialize. I just think the big East got out ahead of it because when you look at those schools, except for Syracuse, except for Pitt, except for UConn, they were small Catholic schools. St. John's being an exception, big Catholic school, you know, 20 something thousand enrollment in uh, there in Jamaica, Queens. Um, but basketball for those schools became their ticket to national stage. Um, and it was because of those network TV contracts. It was because of the way they played, the carrier dome. I mean, all you got to do is watch Requiem for the Big East and just think about what a 36,000 person attendance basketball game, whenever the Hoyas went up there to play, did. But I'll tell you what really turned it was when UConn got good in 88, you know, they won the NIT and then Jim, Jim's teams were extraordinary. And 89 when Seton Hall, which had been, they were, they were 10th in a 19 league when I got there in 86. PJ was a young coach that he was under fire. Dave insisted that they hang in there with him. When Seton Hall got to the championship game in 89 in Seattle, and they really should have beat Michigan. Really, that late call by my pal, Kent State grad, John Clockerty, still haunts me. But uh, 
Chris, I think Chris, I think Ramil Robinson and I were both fouled the same number of times on that. Yeah, drop. that that's about right. Um, but you know, I remember Dave and Billy Raftery crying in the press room when PJ's team qualified for the Final Four because that was so ethereal. That was a true, true measure of what a conference could do. Uh, because Dave used to tell us every day, a league is only as good as its strength at the top, but if the strength at the top can't make the bottom rung folks rise, then we're not a good league. And for Seton Hall to achieve that in that time frame over a three-year, you know, PJ had a magnificent team, but they were really not real high-profile names. Um, and they clocked, you know, they clocked Duke in that semifinal with Danny Ferry and Quinn Snyder. I mean, Duke had an unbelievable team. So the Big East for me was really learning what a great conference could do for its member schools. What did um, Dave Gavitt teach you and, and the people at the Big East just about having vision and taking chances? Because I remember when, in the early going, people would go to Dave and say, um, you know, Commissioner Gavitt, where do you want to have the Big East tournament? And they're thinking, oh, maybe the Providence Civic Center, which would be nice. He's like, I, I, I want to go to Madison Square Garden. I want it in New York City. And people are looking at him like, who, who do you think you are? I mean, that's insane. And then it happens. You always hear it's not impossible till it happens. How did Dave shape, I guess, your philosophy, the team's philosophy? I'm thinking big and really going out and making it happen. Yeah, that's, that was Dave. He, he was always... Um... A, a day and a step ahead of everybody, as was Mike T. You know, Mike Tranguizzi was really the first employee full-time in the office because Dave was still coaching, you know, at Providence when the league started in 79. Um, Mike and Dave, to me, were, were sort of like Don and Jody were down here at Texas. They were, they were different, but they were a formidable duo. Um, Mike was more of a pragmatist. Dave, Dave was uh, amazing in his vision. Um, but what I really learned from them, though, was about relationships. Because remember, Dave was a coach, and that made him so exceptional in the room with all of those personalities that you just described from Louis, Rolly, John, PJ, Paul Evans, uh, Jim Calhoun and Jim O'Brien were first year coaches in the league when I got there in 86. So we were kind of all rookies together. Um, but I used to watch Dave get that group to consensus and how he did it. He did it gently. He let everybody have a, a say, but at some point he would say, we've got to uh, get to affectionately called a Quaker consensus where some of you want to plant the corn here. Some want to plant the corn here, but we've got to figure out where collectively everybody can live with where we're planting it. And, they listened to him um, and, and their relationships with people were extraordinary. Um, it was always personal. I mean, Dave, Dave would just be as apt to ask you about something basketball related as he would want to know about your family. And are you, are you doing okay? You know, you're new to this city. Are you, are you surviving okay as a single woman in Providence? I mean, he was just so caring as was his family. Um, and, Again, Mike to me, Mike was the gutty one. Mike was tough, um, the, you know, the Sicilian and, and Trangizi. So when Dave went to the Celtics, um, you know, we all prayed that Mike would get the commissioner's job in 90, and he did. And 
just to show you how like Dave was, uh, like Dave Mike was, the very first two phone calls he made when he got the commissioner's job, he called Dick Rosenthal at Notre Dame and he called Sam Jankovic at Miami to talk about, I think we're gonna have to start thinking about football. Even though basketball is our ticket, I can't let Pitt, Syracuse, and BC be out there by themselves. Because remember in 89, the year before, uh, Penn State had said it's going to the Big Ten. And so Mike formed that football league while I was still there. Uh, we had four all in, including Miami for all sports. Sam said, I need to be in a league because my poor Olympic sports have no one to compete with. I want to be, he goes, but I don't want to share all my football money. Mike goes, we won't. And at that time, Dennis had a championship team, um, Dennis Erickson. So the other four schools that came in were from, uh, they, some of them were in the Atlantic 10 or the Eastern 8 for all their sports, but they were independents in football. And that was West Virginia, Virginia Tech, Temple, and Rutgers. So we had this eight-team football league, a 10-team all-other sports league, ran two networks, the Big East Network for basketball, third tier. And then we started a football game of the week on our Big East Network for football. I mean, who does that? Um, that was Mike. Um, and it lasted for a long time until, you know, with BCS, CFP, it just got too big, too unwieldy. As you know, they kept adding members. And finally, um, as we know now, Val Ackerman has the league that Dave and Mike really started. It, it was the original Big East basketball only with the Olympic sports type of schools. Um, uh, those of us who lived those glory years in the Big East, who loved it, the original Big East, we have great appreciation that Val has that league, the tournament's still in the garden, and that the purity of what those schools get out of that kind of setup is still right for them. So compare that, let's fast forward a little bit, Chris, to now you're back at Texas, you know, the biggest or one of the biggest, you know, sports programs in the country, um, you know, I guess just maybe maybe compare that a little bit. You know, the Big 12 today um, versus, you know, the Big East back then and, and kind of a fragmented Big 12 sort of, um, if I can say it, a little bit of a mess just trying to figure out kind of, in my opinion, at least kind of what it wants to be when it grows up. Um, and maybe that's the case for conferences as a whole. I'd love to for you to sort of compare and contrast that that time in the Big East with sort of what conferences are now and what they need to be for their member schools. Well, you know, the other visionary, Gabbett-like, Trangizi-like, Donna-like, um, Jody-like is DeLoss Dogs. Um, you know, DeLoss had ironically come to Texas the same year I did. He had come in August of 81, and then I was hired on the women's side in December of 81. Um, and we were five floors apart in old Belmont Hall. Um, I admired DeLoss, just his style, a good man, a former coach. I, I think former coaches in that era made great ADs. Um, DeLoss was a prolific track coach when he was at K-State um, and a great AD there too before Texas hired him. And um, when DeLoss called me, I had seen DeLoss actually at that um, infamous 1993 Final Four in New Orleans where Chris Weber called the extra timeout and allowed Carolina to win. He was on the men's basketball committee and kind of sidled up to me. I was working as a press officer for the NCAA. They used to 
uh, bring in some PR people from across the country to help run the Final Four weekend. And he said, would you ever think about come, uh, working on a campus again? I go, your campus? <laughs> I said, yeah, your campus, absolutely. I said, why do you ask? I, I said, look, and I love my job. I, I love Mike, and he's like a brother to me. And I said, but why do you ask? He said, well, he said, you probably heard um, a year ago, our university was sued by some undergraduate student uh, in intramurals who played on intramural women's teams. And he said, we, we just settled it. Uh, out of court and we're going to add three sports he said but you know we need to figure out a way to make some unconventional revenue to help us um, not only sustain the programs we have we're not going to cut sports but we need to add he said I, I kind of watch what Gavit and Trangese have been doing up there with television he said you know I have a vision of television is going to really be important in our future for our conference and where, and he goes in, you know, the way conference shifting is happening, he goes, there's going to be some action going on. I don't know when, but it'll be soon. So DeLoss saw around corners too, just like Gavin and Trangizi. Bye. Bye, Chris. Have a good trip, buddy. It's my boss, Del County. He's going up to Oklahoma State to whip them, hopefully. That's right. Uh, but okay. anyway, um, I think that DeLoss, uh, when he hired me, he said, look, you're, you're, you're going to be over communication, but what I really need you to start doing is figuring out how we can get some revenue streams. And he said, Jody and I, because Jody was the women's AD at that point and coaching because Donna had left to go to New York and the Sports Foundation. He said, Jody and I are going to start merging some areas together operationally, which again, brilliant. Um, because Jody really didn't want to be the AD. Um, she's a coach, and she had told them that. I'll do it for a while, but, you know, we had to get through this lawsuit, et cetera. So I come down right in the middle of all that. Um, and so uh, we had this great deal with uh, Host Communications, which was our selling partner. And I had met Jim Host through Dave, because he and Dave were great friends. Um, Jim had the rights to our radio network, and all of our printed publications to sell ads. And Jim came down in January of 94 and, and sat with DeLoss and I he said, DeLoss, you need to give me more assets to sell. He said, look at what's happening around the country. He said, you have the Dallas Cowboys in their, in their training camp up at St. Edwards College, which is, you know, D3 school up right up the road. Look at the commercialization they have just for Cowboys football practice. You have a radio remote there. You've got tents and festivals and partners who are paying, paying for the right to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a sponsor of Cowboy Camp. He goes, that's what you need to be doing here. And I want to go sell that. So we tore up our contract with hosts, redid it and started again, allowing them to ooch out there in the commercialization. Now we had to go get a bunch of regents rules changed here because that stuff was not allowable. We could not put our Longhorn silhouette, that beautiful logo next to a business that was not in our trademark rules. So believe it or not, it took three more years until August of 97 before the regents finally said, okay, we get what you're trying to do and we're gonna allow you to do it. And think about that 97 timeframe. By then Augie was hired, Rick came a year later, Mac was hired and we got really good. And then all of a sudden, all those sponsors and deals and our trademark uh, relationship with Collegiate Licensing Company, when we got good, we were ready. DeLoss saw all of that 
five years before that happened. He just had to get things in place. Um, again, and I was not a marketer. You know, somebody asked me, how, how, uh, how do you know you can sell a sponsorship? I said, I don't know that I can, but I know how, I know what the pitch needs to be. Um, so Delos really was, he was so great because, you know, it wasn't an accepted thing back then. People didn't want to see that stuff. In fact, DeLoss told Scott Willingham from a host communications staff, our selling staff here, he goes, I'm going to stand out on that photo deck when you guys do that American Airlines kick. Like, you know, if you kick it through, you get a ticket. And if you move back five yards, another, you get a first class upgrade. He goes, if anybody boos, that, that sponsorship's gone. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> booed. They clapped. They loved it. And he went, okay, I get, we can do this now. I mean, that's how rudimentary it was. And trust me, uh, without that selling partner host, um, which is now, you know, turned into IMG College and now Learfield IMG, there's not a school in the country that uh, could be operating the way we are with sustained revenue coming from, uh, you know, other sources other than tickets, TV, and, um, you know, donations. I mean, it had to be more than that in order to get to where we are today. Chris, with coronavirus, it's unlike anything we've ever seen uh, in 2020. You have so many revenue streams at Texas. You're a high achiever. I don't know how much you sleep because you're on all these boards and everything like that. But when you try to catch some sleep, what keeps you awake in terms of the student athletes, the coaches, and just the livelihoods of the people you work with every day to try to keep athletics going and the jobs that uh, the really hardworking men and women that work in athletics going for 2021 and beyond? Well, you know, um, the thing about COVID is look what it's done to not only our country, but to the structure of higher ed. I mean, it, you know, you guys have been around big universities a lot and just, you know, what campuses are, they're like beehives. It's vibrant. I mean, you just, I mean, it keeps you young. I feel like a young person because I've worked at, on a college campus most of my life. It is eerie right now because 70% of our students, and we're a big campus, you know, 39,000 undergrads, 13,000 grad students, eerily quiet. Like I took a walk last Thursday around the perimeter of campus and I was like, oh, this has to end soon because it's frustrating. But the contrast on that is when COVID hit in March and we all got sent home and remote learning started because we were not a massive online course kind of campus. We're real touchy feely in the classroom at Texas, but everything went, you know, after an extended two week spring break, the rest of the semester in the spring was online. But here's the beauty of being on a college campus. You have colleagues who are facing the same thing we were with our subset of students. We have 525 of them at the time. They were dealing with the masses. So our staff worked with campus staff, the medical group, the campus ops group, the campus finance group. Number one priority was get through the semester, continue to resource for our students, take care of our staff, and then by late spring, June, summer school time, we were ready to begin to onboard slowly our sports. And, you know, we started with football and we started, thanks to the intel and the care and the fact that we were going to have a testing regimen. Thank God Austin is a big market with a lot of medical resources now. Um, 
we started football with an outdoor weight room setup. We went up to the Denius Fields and Yancey McKnight, Tom's strength coach, put eight stations up there. The kids would come, masked, work out, leave. And, and we said, football's gonna be our guinea pig. If we can't keep football healthy with the high volume of staff and personnel plus kids, don't, we, don't even bother with the rest. So we kept everybody away, staff still remote. And when we got through, pretty much after a few stumbles, I mean, I, I will admit, you know, it's really hard for kids to understand. You can't aggregate, you can't go party, you can't do this. I mean, they're college kids, we were all there once. So I would say that everybody had their knucklehead experience early, um, but it doesn't take long for a 10 to 14 day quarantine to teach you, you don't wanna go there again. And I'm telling y'all, I think uh, our sports med people have been unbelievable because that everything is filtered through safety. Like, you know, we're, we're a month away from starting basketball and yesterday Shaka and Vic asked us, can our kids come in in off hours now and just get more shots in? Like, we're ready for that. And we said, yeah. Give us a plan, but we need to know the hours that has to happen. We have to have staff members in the building when it happens. They still have to temperature take. We need them to make sure they're socially distant reasonably and just keep what we've established so far consistent. Like in other words, safety first. Um, we have tested, I think over 9,000 times. And I think our number of positives are just over a hundred since we started testing. Incredible. It's incredible. Um, you know, and we test three times a week for our contact sports, football, soccer, volleyball, men and women's basketball right now. A sport like swimming, like our women swim the Aggies this afternoon, they test once a week because it's a non-contact sport. Um, it, it is incredible how lucky and fortunate we've been. But again, that's a credit to the kids buying in. They understood it and it, you know, Tom told the football team, if you wanna play, this is the way you have to do it. When they jump on that plane today, they'll be masked, face shielded, it's a quick flight. Um, they'll be socially distanced on the plane, minimal travel parties. I mean, if you don't have to go on a trip, I have not been on a plane since we got home from Kansas City in the Big 12 basketball tournament in March when COVID hit. Um, I don't need to go anywhere, I'll come to a football game, but I spend, most of my time outdoors, I, I, you know, I don't want to go up and in and out of stands and suites. Um, but we are masked. Um, the only reason I don't have a mask on right now is I'm in my office by myself with the door closed. Otherwise, I'm, I'm in a mask. That's the rule. Um, so it has been incredible how collaborative and synchronous this has had to be. I mean, think about facility people having to be spick and span after a team works out, you know, sanitize, re-sanitize. Um, and the kids help, um, be it volleyball, saying, hey, we'll clean our own balls. We'll clean the spots on the floor ourselves. You guys have enough to do. I mean, it, it's incredible how uh, collaborative this has been. But again, we jumped on this early in the spring, um, had campus uh, reps meeting with our reps, the campus committees that were meeting with how are we going to do these in-person classes or hybrid classes. We took lessons from them. Um, we tied off all the non-use seats in volleyball, like we're playing volleyball in the Irwin Center instead of Gregory. Um, we got the idea of how to tie off the seats that we didn't want people to sit in and use to socially distance about a thousand fans. Uh, one of our staff members said, I saw this in a 400 seat classroom in McCombs. So 
let's use the same ties that they did. These, these are almost like handy bag ties, only they're about nine feet long. Um, the stuff that we've done collaboratively, collaboratively on campus just to get through this to this point healthy is incredible. And, you know, we look at our colleagues, you know, there's only really a few leagues playing right now and the Big Ten got off to a start last week. And I mean, how heartsick would you be to be a Wisconsin, Nebraska fan right now? That, that had to be so devastating for those kids, those fans, that staff, that, those campuses. We finally got to play and then boom, um, just unlucky, um, sad. Tell you what, Chris, it brings to mind, if I can get on a soapbox for just a second, if as a society, we took the same protocols with social events in neighborhoods, in establishments that are being taken in schools, my kids are masked all day. I haven't heard a word about it in a negative way. If we get to go to school and we get to be with our friends, I'll wear a mask all day, all night if I need to. And you have such low transmission in schools. And you talked about the positivity rate at Texas. I just wish we would all do that in all realms of life and maybe get this thing under control a little bit better. There, there's no question. I mean, we, we are a living, breathing example of it um, here at UT. Um, and remember, those testing numbers, some of those include our regular student body. Like last week, um, the testing for the Baylor game, we had our highest number of UT students who did the, you know, the quick tests, 1,800 of them. Um, I think there were only 11 positives. So the kids here are doing a good job in their own on or off campus spaces. And, and it really takes policing each other. Like, you know, when somebody walks in and doesn't have a mask on or up over the nose and mourn properly, you got to call them out. I mean, um, we really, we have a theme here and it's called Protect Texas Together. And it's, there's an app and a website and it basically outlines all of the safety precautions and you cannot waver. You, you have to stay diligent uh, because now we're really getting in now to our winter sports, you know, adding on swimming. Uh, Big 12 cross country meet was today in Lawrence, Kansas, you know, small group up, small group back on a charter. Um, so we, we're feeling more normal than a lot of people across the country in athletics anyway, because we are playing. Um, but, uh, you know, again, you, you just have to stay, stay very on it and uh, totally dedicated to it. And of course, Chris, the other big thing that has happened over the summer and leading into the school year is um, all of the racial justice issues. And Texas has obviously been in the news for that. Um, I will just give our listeners my perspective. So we have been season ticket holders for football and gone to many, many other sports. I take my kids to games, um, not this season, but in the past. And um, it means a lot when you hold up those horns and you sing the eyes of Texas. And it has been in the news um, as somebody and, and people who listen to this podcast know that I definitely fall significantly left of center. And I very much appreciate the conversations that we're having around racial justice. I also appreciate the unity that the eyes of Texas brings. And so I am, I am struggling with this on a personal level. And I would just love to hear from you um, sort of the perspective, um, maybe the Chris perspective and the university perspective and, and sort of some of those conversations that have been had. Well, as you know, uh, midsummer, um, Chris Delcani, President Hartzell, 
um, our VP for Student Affairs, Samsia Reagan's Lily, you know, and again, a, a black woman leader, um, significant person on our campus, among others, signed off on a variety of platforms that the university was going to implement um, in response to um, the, the aptly called attention to the cruelty of what's going on in our country. And, um, you know, we can't deny that racism is still here and we've got to be anti-racist. We have, we have got to stay there, be it, um, you know, based on ethnicity, color. Um, but, but remember too, um, we're all old enough to know that there have been other groups that have been suppressed and oppressed and treated cruelly. Um, you know, uh, gay, gay and lesbian people, uh, trans people, women have been held down. I mean, I just watched on Netflix the other night, uh, I Am Woman, um, about Helen Reddy and that song and what she went through to become a performer and, and yet what that song inspired. Um, but this is about right now, social justice and racism. And I thought our university responded immediately for things like um, the, the, some of the buildings. Um, and as you know, we've removed statues of Confederate folks here on campus and that was controversial too, but those were replaced into museum type areas. Um, so this didn't just start this summer post George Floyd, but certainly the George Floyd situation um, you know, caused everybody to just sit up and say, what, you know, what's going on in our country? Um, but RLM, uh, you know, is going to be renamed. We've, we're going to have a Heman Sweat uh, entry to the Painter Hall because Painter, again, uh, a, a very influential figure on campus, but there's a context there because of the Painter versus Sweat lawsuit about integrating our, uh, uh, our university. And then, of course, the president said we are going to uh, create a committee that will review the, the Eyes of Texas, but the Eyes of Texas is our school song. So that is now a committee that is formed and we'll have student athlete rep representation on it, um, including a former student athlete, Quan Cosby. Most of you know Quan, he, he does radio sideline for us. Uh, and Quan, again, is, is a little bit of an older student athlete who probably has a different idea of the Eyes, just like Earl Campbell and Ricky Williams and TJ Ford do. Um, but again, that this needs to happen um, in terms of examination and Dr. Richard Reddick will head that committee. Um, but as you know, universities are places of opinion and discourse. It has to be allowed to happen. And I know, I have a feeling I know what your feelings are being a proud uh, love, lover of UT and, and dedicated person to UT. Um, I'm an employee here and I know how I feel. Um, neither of us have the right to tell somebody else how they should feel, but what we can do is talk about it and talk openly and freely and without fear. And that's going to happen about this song. It, it clearly touches a nerve, but depending on your age, who you are, what you did, what you do, and how you feel about it, everybody feels like their opinion should be heard and it matters. And clearly we have a, a group of young people that, um, and, and by the way, that is not drawn on a color line, um, that feel right now differently. 
and they may not feel any better and we may not feel any better depending on the outcome of this. But um, what I love about being on a campus is that people uh, often say without, without data and without reality and without research, really all you have is another opinion. And so there needs to be research, discussion, data on this. And there is some, it may not change anybody's mind. It may not change anything about the song, but it's gonna get, it's gonna have discourse. And that's what we owe. I, I am refreshed being again, a, a proud Kent State grad where um, my entire college life every spring because of the shootings that happened in 70. I wasn't there during the shootings. I was in seventh grade, 20 minutes up the road. But when I was in college, every spring, those people that were impacted who were older than me by the May 4 shootings came back to campus. And I watch discourse. I watch conversation. And now when I go back to Kent State, when I go home to see my mom and my sisters, I walk the path of what happened that historic day in 70, tragic as it was, it changed the course of the war. But for a long time, people acted like they didn't, they didn't even wanna recognize that it had happened there. When the university finally dealt with it, over years and years, um, and they just celebrated the 50th anniversary in the spring of that tragic event. I, I don't wanna say celebrate, but recognized it. It was incredible what they had to do COVID on Zoom and for panel discussions and everything else, it was incredible. Again, at universities, those kind of things can happen and have good outcomes, fair outcomes, because people feel like their expression or their opinion was heard and they got a chance to talk about it. So um, I'm really proud of our student athletes and our students who have the confidence to express concern about social justice issues. Um, I can tell you that as a female in, a, in an unconventional business, which is sports, at the time I got in it, it was hard. It was hard. At times it was mean. At times I would go home and go, I'd stare at the ceiling and go, I, I don't want to go to work tomorrow and see that person or this person that I know would rather shoot me in the back or stab me in the back than help me be successful. Um, but you know, it also inspired me every day to say, I'm not gonna be like those people. I'm gonna continue to keep my nose to the grindstone and fight the good fight because I, I owe it to people who, who wanna be like me to not give up. And, and I feel, you know, I feel for minority students because I always have. And again, one of those things that I learned when I came to Texas, um, which again, there were not many black students on campus during that early era in the 80s, but a lot of them um, were our athletes, our student athletes, both male and female. And they, they probably had similar days that I did as an employee to say, I don't see many people that look like me. Who do I talk to? but we worked really hard to find men and women of color to put around them so that they could be inspired by somebody that was of their heritage and was of their skin color to say, whether it was Myra McDaniel, who was secretary you know, of state at that time, or John Butler, who taught in the business school, Reuben McDaniel, who was a professor in information science. I mean, they would sit with our kids and say, you can do this, but 
prepare for it to be hard. It's going to be hard, but you can do it. And if you need support, if you need backing, you call me. And again, I think about, um, I think about how those kids even today think about what those people did for them. That's what we need to be here for today in, in today's time. We have to be here to listen and to allow our young people to express what they feel, try to guide them where appropriate, but allow that discourse to happen. Absolutely. And I think, I think from the eyes perspective, look, as you said, I can have my opinion, but at the end of the day, at least from a fan's perspective, as somebody who loves that song and think that over the last hundred years, it's probably created more unity than division. I, for anyone who has not been there at a football game when 100,000 people have their horns up and sing together, it's, it's special. And I think, I think, but to me, it's just a tradition. That's all it is. And traditions can be rewritten. Traditions can be changed. New traditions can abide. And so to me, regardless of what the outcome is, the conversation to me is way more important than the actual conclusion. And if that song ends up, if the data comes out and the university decides that it's better to move on to something else, then we'll create a new tradition. And that's okay. And I think it's, it's okay to be allowed to, to be sad about that if that's what comes of it. It's also okay to be on the other side of it and to be sad about it, but understand that that decision was made, right? It can go either way and I think it's okay. And I think it's all about, as you said, you know, the communication, the ability to allow people to have the space to talk about it. And, and then whatever comes, comes, right? And then we kind of deal with whatever that next fallout is. But I, I have been very proud um, of the University of Texas and how it's handled, not just that, but, you know, Ricky and Earl with the, uh, with the field being named after them, you know, with the, the family support, right? I mean, it, it's just, to me, like all of the right steps have been made. And I know you're in PR, Chris, but, you know, I don't, I think getting out ahead of it, not allowing, you know, the, the, the outside voices to come in. I mean, to me, like it's been a master class in sort of how to handle something like this that's very difficult and frankly doesn't have a right or wrong answer. There is no, there is no perfect solution here. And, and, and I give, I give you, and I give, you know, Chris Del Conte and the entire athletics department and, you know, um, President Hartzell, you know, everybody, all of that credit. I, I just think it has been, it really has been insp inspirational to watch. Well, you're right. And, and think about the field naming, um, you know, Joe Jamal, there was no one who was more, who was stronger a personality than Joe Jamal. And, you know, we lost Joe and um, for his son, Dar, and those brothers to offer that opportunity and to say, this is what our family wants to do. We want to have a unification feel about this. Please, please um, allow Ricky and Earl's name to be on that field. I mean, what a gesture. What, what a heartfelt uh, decision. And then Again, the Whittier statue, um, some of us were lucky enough to meet Julius um, as, as a professional. Uh, he was such an elegant man. Um, and then to you know, have a chance to reread his story. And we're gonna put that statue right outside the Hall of Fame, right on that block. It's gonna be a magnificent uh, piece. 
We're going to do that on, on uh, the morning of our Iowa State football game on that Friday. Um, it's going to be so prominent. Um, but when you read about that young man's decision to come to Texas, um, uh, you know, he, he was in a lonely spot too. But again, he, he came, he succeeded, he had support. And it's because of people like Julius that um, we're, we're seeing who we see today having these conversations. And again, our, our campus has been through a lot. We're going through a lot right now. Um, this election next week. Um, I mean, I'm, I've just been politically mesmerized and I'm not a political person, but there's so much riding on, on it, um, the outcome of it. And um, our, you know, our country needs to get through COVID. We need a vaccine. We need treatment. We need the economy to perk back up, but, but our country needs to unify again. And um, it, it, we've got to be talking to each other civilly and, and with care and with sensitivity. Um, uh, America is, has been the hope and dreams of, for so many. Um, and, you know, we can't be shaking at our core. And um, our great university systems, um, again, where you change the arc of people's lives when, when they have access to education. Um, and this is why, you know, I'm a staunch opponent of professionalizing anything about college athletics. I, it just won't work. I mean, I am all for as much financial aid and services as we can give our kids. Trust me, if they, if they took the cap off of federal financial aid and said we could do that, we'd go out and raise more money and give full scholarships to all of them instead of partials here and there the way the NCA structure is. But um, to, to make it be an employee-employer relationship, I'm telling you, it would break what DeLoss and Dave Gavitt and Lopiano and all the others believe in, which is it is a co, at this level on our campuses, it is a co-curricular activity. What, what they're really here for is that degree. And if, if that ever changes, we, we will lose it all. And we've built this system brick by brick over years and years and years. And there's a lot of cynicism about it. I get it when coaches are making multi-millions and we're putting scoreboards that look like the scoreboards you see in the Cowboy Stadium in our facilities. I just walked through our new softball player development center this morning with Chris and the team where we had a reveal. $13 million project. I can't, I mean, I could, can't believe what we added on to that great stadium that uh, Red McCombs and his wife helped us build how many years ago, almost 23 years ago. Um, we'll do that all day long, but to see the look on those young ladies' faces, the appreciation, the thanks they gave us, and they're all like, I got to go to class now. Um, I love that. And we've got to sustain this. Um, because again, the educational piece, without that, it's just not the same. I don't think it'd be the same for our donors. I don't think it'd be the same for our fans. They like supporting 17 to 23 year olds who are getting an education just like they did and also trying to represent their university well. So we're in the fight of our, we're in the fight of our lives, I'm telling you right now, because this system is under fire. Um, and uh, I think if we ever professionalize it. Uh, well, like I said, I'm 60, so I'm almost 63. And um, if that happens, I, I can promise you, I'll, I'll say, hey, I, I remember when it was great and had a great run in it, but this, this would not be appealing for me.
Well, Chris, I could literally talk to you all day long. <laughs> I really could, but I want to be super respectful of your time. We've been going over an hour now. Um, you are, I just, you know, as somebody who, who, as I say, bleeds burn orange and holds my horns high, you know, it's just such an honor to get to speak to you, um, to the entire athletics department, the academics side as well. You know, the University of Texas, I, I think, holds itself in just such amazing regard. And I know there are people out there who, who love to hate on the University of Texas, but that's because they're jealous. That's my, my personal opinion. Um, and, and it's just, I, I just think the way you guys go about things and do things, it's, it's really inspirational. And, um, you know, I, I just thank you so much for, for taking this much time out of your day to talk to us about, you know, student athletes in general. And it's just been an amazing conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you, and and thanks for the the uh, the honor and homage you're paying to Del Connie too, because again, he uh, he's an amazing leader. Um, there is a uh, he he is just a wonderful wonderful administrator. Uh, he, he's a great husband and father too. His daughter, his eldest daughter, is in school here. Um, I'll tell you, Del Connie is is one special person. He is great for our business. He's a great leader. He came in here with a lot of challenges, and I just look at the cranes and the the stuff we're doing, the uh, the great fundraising he's doing. He's clever, um, but he's a, he he literally he's a serve serve upward man. He cares about this place. He cares about people. He has great relationships with our kids and coaches, and uh, I just, it's magic to watch him work. Um, so, you know, and he, there's a spirituality about him, like I mentioned. I, I told him, I said, you know, Chris, this job is hard. I know it is. You know, DeLoss did it for how many years? And he was an amazing leader with longevity. Very few ADs lasted in the chair as long as DeLoss had at Texas. And, uh, but I told, I told him, I said, you know, the Lord has, has a way of putting people in places where they need to be. And you know, he had a great job at TCU. He didn't need to come here, but he was up for a challenge. And I, I wink at him every once in a while and say, you got one. Uh, but uh, he's perfect for where we are right now. And he's going to get us through this, just like President Hartzell will get us through the challenges that we have for our campus. But uh, you're right. It's, it's a special place. I knew at the minute I got here, there was just something about this this bright, shiny University of Texas place. I love the confidence, the, the standard of excellence, the swagger of a Texan. You know, like I, I tell people all the time, I, I, uh, I'm not from here, um, but I'm, as Daryl used to say, I'm now dipped and vaccinated as a Texan. So uh, I, hope, I hope to be here the rest of my life. Well, Chris, we Thank really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks. Hook Thank em. you, Chris. Hook them. Bye, guys. Bye. A fascinating conversation with Chris Plonsky. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. And I think Chris's story really shows, you know, she alluded to it. There are days that are really, really hard when you're a female administrator and a leader in a predominantly male-oriented industry. And there are times where you're going to be challenged to see how bad you really want something. And she hung in there. She still seems energetic as ever, as sharp as a whip, and, and going to continue to make a difference there in Austin, Matt. Yeah, she's an inspiring individual. Um, Y'all know I believe Burn Orange, so it's it's fun to get to talk to her. And and just in such a unique time, somebody who spent their entire career 
in life, um, you know, in higher education and athletics and how student athletes are portrayed, especially at a university like, like Texas that's under a microscope all the time during coronavirus, during some racial justice issues. It's just a fascinating time. And um, yeah, Chris, thanks so much for, for taking the time to be with us today. We really, really appreciate you, as always, tuning in to the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like, give us a subscribe. We'd love to have you on the bus with us as we thunder on. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you.